Welcome to Making Moves, a podcast presented by Skate Like a Girl and the Center for Sport and Social Justice at Cal State University, East Bay. Here, we'd like to serve our audience by educating and also inspiring y'all to feel empowered through sport, social justice, and skateboarding. All athletes, skateboarders, and fans of sport and social justice are welcome. Funding for Making Moves was provided by California State University East Bay and the Center for Sport and Social Justice. Make sure to catch all six episodes of Making Moves streaming now on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. There's this environment right now, not, not that everybody welcomes it, but it's much more, it's much more welcome to have a young woman say, we're getting treated bad here and it's not cool. You know, it's not the way we should be doing business. And so and not that we need people like Steph Curry. It's not that women need Steph Curry to, to like pat them on the back, but it is kind of cool when a, when a prominent male athlete steps up and say, you're right, this isn't right, fix it. What draws us, for those of us that are athletes, that are coaches, that are fans, what really draws us to sport? Um, is it the ability to make money? Actually, research shows most people don't, that's not what attracts them to sport, right, is profitability. It's about community. It's about friendships, the friendships that we have over a lifetime. It's about the pleasure of movement, feeling your body move and creating a sense of, of transcendence, right, through sport. So for me, the biggest, you know, problem that leads to a lot of other problems is the commercialization of sport within a capitalist society. More broadly, commercialization creates a structuring logic within sport. One of the terms that people use um, in, in sports studies is the performance principle. So this is um, a set of ideas and attitudes that creates a value structure around of instrumental means to end attitude that just emphasizes measurable outcomes. Right. And we just see this across all levels of sports. Right. And so it's this again, it's a structuring logic. It's a way of thinking that organizes how we build our institutions and the things that people do within those spaces and what we teach for those of us that coach. Right. We're, we're sort of forced uh, to follow this performance principle. The other thing that it does is it creates a pyramid in the U.S. sports system. You know, and you like you think about it at the bottom of the pyramid, there is this large space of youth sport and lots of kids are encouraged to come in and participate in sport. But as they age and they advance in their athletic careers, there's a winnowing down or a weeding out of people as the competition increases. And so the idea is that we're creating this pyramid that, that leads to the production of really elite athletes. And so we have, we do, you know, the United States, we do great in the Olympics. I mean, in terms of the medal count, right? Our professional sports and our professionalized amateur sports, right? Tremendous, tremendous, tremendous athletes. But what that means is a lot of people along the way fall out. Um, and by design, people fall out of, um, out of sports. The other thing we see is that youth sports has become increasingly expensive 
and as a result, increasingly exclusionary, right? And a lot of that has to do with the fact that because our sports system is so commercialized, uh, the youth sport has to be profitable for, for it to even exist, right? So much of it, as particularly as it moves out of a more public sector and into a private sector, which, which we really see. So commercialization creates an exclusionary sports system and basically bad public policy because sport resources are distributed unevenly, which means health resources are distributed unevenly. If I notice that a girl isn't coming to practice, you don't kind of just leave it. Oh, go to our house. We'll have lunch. We'll talk about what's going on. And generally there is, there's a reason. And the reason is often addressable and like also has to do with the way in which our world is structured right now. And those barriers are, are not always viewable right on the surface, but if you dig a little deeper and, and ask yourself those harder questions, why are there no girls playing on this field? Why are there no girls of color playing on this field? What about that space is, is creating that environment where girls and girls of color particularly don't feel comfortable? I think asking yourself those hard why questions is really important to then changing the way that you bring yourself into a space, create a space to ensure that those barriers disappear. That's, I think asking those whys is really paramount in in changing it. There's a different connection built with each participant. And I think that's something that I value so much because again, like I said, growing up, I didn't even have a relationship with my coaches. It was kind of just show up and be a robot and do what you're expected to do today, which is quote unquote win, right? And with the up to us training, I remember going to it and being like, oh my God, like this, it was overwhelming for me because I've never been exposed to such coaching techniques in my life, nor expected us. No, I didn't expect so much from it in a positive way. You know, it, it constantly, it gave me this opportunity to approach how to build relationships with a participant or a player. And I'm, it's, it's amazing because like you said, that's, this is what keeps participants wanting to show up. It goes beyond sports. You know, that relationship that you build with each individual participant is different, but they're so strong because, you know, you get to know them in a very different manner beyond their sports ability, which is amazing to me because yeah, like you can find a participant who's really good at soccer, for example, but it goes beyond that because you're with these participants learning to work with them outside of sports essentially and i'm so grateful for that if you ask the question what's wrong with you it's kind of the wrong question you should be asking what happened Mm. what happened in the past to you that you haven't been able to process that's now resulting and manifesting in this way and so so you know it's kind of a good way of just being really sharp about what's the question you need to be asking to solve the problem that we're trying to solve and so that began what's happened to you is like the simplest way of saying that is why so sad? Like, why are you so sad? Think back. What happened? Mm. That's where it came from, really. And then it sort of sounds a bit flippant. But, you know, if you take it seriously, it's actually a serious question. So that became this, hey, well, it's sad plans and then sad grabs. And there's a play on words and some fun we can have in that. And skateboarding at the same time as trying to find a lighthearted way into a tough subject, basically. 
and that's that totally. and you on Instagram and there's, you know, people have submitted sad plans to me last year and we made a video and a collage and did a board with real that was awesome, raised some money, did an event and made a video that lots of people got to watch and got their brains thinking about the subject and hopefully like kept the dialogue going and gave people some new ideas about how they can approach it and where they might get some help or different ways of thinking about their own mental health mental health issues were on the rise and you know looking at depression for example as being one of the leading causes of disability or suicide second leading cause of death in the world and in the u.s between ages between 15 and 29 for the world and 10 to 34 for the u.s and i was thinking that this is huge so i started digging a little bit deeper and realizing that not only is this happening throughout society but it's even worse on college campuses and it's rising even quicker on college campuses. And so I decided to take more of a social psychological perspective and taking a cue, I guess, from the World Health Organization and looking at the way they looked at health. And they basically said there's four aspects of health, which is physical, mental, social, and spiritual well-being. And therefore, in order for me to try to understand mental health a bit more and why it's elevating in some and not in others, or why it's more prevalent in certain races or genders in different groups, I decided to do a holistic survey out there based on some selected surveys that I that are already done in the social psychological community. And being able to see does any of this social, physical, and or spiritual health impacts mental health in some way. And after running the data, we're, we're currently in the write-up. Uh, Cecilia, for example, is, is helping me out on this and um, doing a lot of research on it and doing a lot of writing on it. But we found that there was significance in all, meaning that the higher your spiritual health levels are, the, the better your mental health is. The higher your social support or social health is, the better your mental health is. And then, of course, the more physical activity, I use more of a physical activity questionnaire, and the higher your physical activity levels are, the better your physical health is. And I myself have also have, have had my own little struggles here and there. I struggled through like depression and anorexia all throughout high school. And that was pretty tough on me. So, you know, this research on mental health really hits close to home for me. And so as Dr. Mike mentioned, we're trying to get people to see that, you know, trying to get, you know, people to see that, that health needs to be looked at in a more holistic manner and not just the physical, but also the mental and the social and how all those interact in order to kind of shape a person, right? And if we can understand that, then we can find more accurate mechanisms to kind of mitigate those issues that someone may or may not have, especially the student population, which can be quite uh, sensitive because there's like all these extra stress factors and all, and all that. So um, I'm like super excited to be working with this project. Like I said, it's something that's really personal to me. Um, so you know, this research can also help not only us understand, but other researchers understand uh, and create their own, you know, research on how to help people recognize that they're not alone and this is an increasing issue and, you know, that we shouldn't be ashamed about it and all that. So it's important to dig deep into this stuff because it can be quite complex. People feel like they have to be in crisis 
in order to come to counseling. So a lot of like being afraid is like, okay, I'm going to go, but oh, 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 I can just handle it. Nothing's really wrong with me. I'm fine. I don't need to go now. Or oh, if I go, people are going to judge me or oh, it's not that bad yet. When really we all need somebody to talk to. There's not a person on earth that's not going through something that hasn't some, hasn't had some type of emotional reaction to something that's happened. And then so being able to know that you do not have to be in crisis. We actually prefer people to come before they get in crisis so that you can learn the skills and not feel like when you're in that deep dark hole you're just down there just wallowing but if you have practice and you have support and you have a couple of skills to learn you'll be able to see some light while you're down there in that hole trying to climb your way out um so that's definitely like a huge huge myth that i want to say is for people to not wait sometimes it's literally just jumping in there jumping in there scared and trying to figure out like what's going to happen on the other side of being uncomfortable um and knowing that it can be very beneficial whether you're crisis whether you just need somebody to talk to about something simple whether nothing's wrong therapists do like to hear successes people we don't we don't always feel like we have to hear all the detrimental dark things like we love to celebrate with you too so for any experience anyone is having we just say bring it bring it and we welcome you with no judgment and we're there to just sit with you through all of it it's like if you're gonna perform at a high level right like you're you know, on one of the sports teams at CSU East Bay, or even for skateboarding, you're, you're pushing yourself, right. To learn new stuff and you're progressing like in skateboarding, it's becoming more popular to like stretch before you start skating and, or maybe stretch when you get home or take a day off and like do some yoga. And before that wasn't a thing, it was just like, just go out and skate and like cross your fingers that your body can manage it. Um, so it kind of think, I think about kind of like the prehab work and just like, if we want to be our best selves, both, you know, on the field, on our boards, in the classroom, in the workplace, in our relationships with our family and our friends and our loved ones, like there's some work to be done. Right. And it can, I love that. Like you really underscored the idea of not waiting until there's a crisis. Cause that's kind of like only going, you know, to do, to see your trainer, to see the coach when your foot is broken. It's like, well, what about those strengthening and, you know, uh, conditioning exercises that you could have been doing the whole time. Right. So that you can avoid that injury. Right. No, no person would pretend to be trans to achieve, to achieve some kind of glory in women's sports. Um, especially because it is so hard right now to be trans in the United States. Like we talked about the levels of harassment, violence, bullying, all of it is just so hard to endure. Um, and I think the last piece I'll say, cause oh, there's just so much, but yeah, <laughs> I, I'm somebody who grew up worshiping women's sports, you know, as a non-binary person. And, you know, I grew up in Pittsburgh in the nineties and I had no words for my gender identity sports was the one of the only places where I felt like myself, where I felt embodied, where the bullying stopped for like two seconds. And I could yeah. just, you know, forget everything and everything fell away. And not only do I want every kid to have access to the life-saving benefits of sport that I did, but I also want us to actually address the very real and documented challenges to women's sports. Like I want all schools to be in compliance with title nine. I want women's programs and programs for young girls to be properly funded. I want women to have equal pay. Like these are the issues, you know, the, the the, the issues are not trans athletes. And in all of the amazing organizations that have done research on gender equity in sport, like the women's sports foundation, you know, they released a report called chasing equity in 2019 that is incredibly thorough. 
And guess what is not mentioned anywhere in that report? Trans athletes, because they're not a threat to women's sports. So it's just, it's so painful to see this narrative unfolding because at the end of the day, there are real people and real kids that pay the consequences of, of lawmakers' actions. And it's just been so, so heartbreaking to watch. I wanted to speak to two things that you brought up because it just kind of was like buzzing off of my head. I was like, yes, yes, yes. And I think the first one is just when you talked about advantages and like just from my realm of skateboarding, I've talked about this for years. I'm like, people are stressed about like trans women coming into skateboarding or whatever, um, or trans men or whatever. Like people have all this fear around trans folks, but it's like, and how they have some advantage or something. But if you think about it, it's like, what about the kid that has the parents that like built them a vert ramp in their backyard? Like I I know kids that straight up their parents are so wealthy. They have their own private skate park in their backyard or they get to go to skate camp every summer or they always have new skate equipment, you know? And if you think about that on a global scale with other sports, there's so many advantages and people are not up in arms about those. Like, especially if you think about in the winter Olympics and snow sports and who has access to snow sports, you know, like, so yeah, I just wanted to say that was like buzzing in my head. I was like, yes. Um, And the second thing you said about just the life-changing nature of sport and where the bullying goes away. And that I totally, that very much resonated with me. I was the girl that played football with the boys at recess. Like sports was the only area that I really felt like I could fully be myself and robbing that of young people and any human being, but especially young people. Like, man, I got chills when you were talking about that. Like it just breaks my heart. So thank you for, you know, sharing and unpacking those, those myths and, and fictions. And, you know, hopefully we can, as a community, start to, you know, talk about the real inequities, which are like, you know, making sure women do have more access to sport. You know, if that's the concern, okay, let's go for it. Like what's up with title (laughs) nine? I am non-binary. So it's like, even if I wanted to even consider being an Olympian in anything, like what, there's not gonna be a third option for non-binary people. Like, how are you going to even throw us in there? Um, I am on hormones though. So they would be like, Oh, well you're, we're going to consider you a man. And like, now you have to have all of these surgeries. Like, yeah, for my personal body, I, I am uh, working on getting top surgery, but that's just for me being comfortable with my own body. I don't want to be a man. Like I don't need any bottom surgery. I don't want any bottom surgery. If I do eventually change my mind, that's on me, but that's not going to affect me doing the sport or skating. Like that makes no sense. And also, like, you have to be a full trans person like that. These rules make no sense. Like, how do you categorize something like that? Like a trans man, there's trans men, trans women, like you don't need, they don't want certain like surgeries. Like, why do these surgeries uh, give us like our identity or like qualify us for being a uh, like trans? Like that makes no sense. If I show up to a space where um, I'm going to introduce myself and like, let's say I'm the only trans person there. And I start by being like, Hey, my name's Alexa. I use she, her pronouns. And then the person that I'm talking to is like, Hey, what's up? I'm Jim. And it's like, Oh, cool. Cause like, I see why you think like that the expectation is that I'm going to share my pronouns with you. And then when I pass it to you and I've kind of set that expectation by doing so myself, what I see happen when you don't share your pronouns is you're like subtly telling me like, 
you know, like you have, there's already an expectation in your mind. I don't need to tell you what my pronouns are because I expect you to know. And like, that's a privilege that cis people have to like, un like subconsciously just like expect everyone to know how they identify. And so another thing is like, if I introduce myself with my pronouns and then someone doesn't like kind of reciprocate that and makes that assumption, um, that kind of is another indicator that I'm like, Hmm, I don't know where you stand on my identity as a person. Like, this is like who I'm wrapped up. Like I'm wrapped up in myself as my identity. And now I have to constantly wonder like the people I encounter, is this going to be a problem? Like, am I going to be safe in these spaces? And that's like one of the first like little indicators that I can be like, we might have an issue. But I also think just like from a less like, maybe like a less like um, intense standpoint, I think that there's just value in normalizing that because it raises the question for everyone and like gives a person who might not have considered to think about how they identify to think, well, like, well, what pronouns do I want to use? Not necessarily the ones that have been given to me, but like what resonates with me. And it just opens the opportunity to normalize the conversation around like embracing the identity that you feel most comfortable being a part of being with and representing you. It would be ignorant of us to say that skateboarding is that much more inclusive than the world around it. Um, like it doesn't exist separately from any other existing issues in the world because skateboarding takes so much tenacity and just like willingness to try over and over again. Like no matter what level of skateboarding you're at, it's always hard basically. Like, so I think that it still just stays challenging no matter where you are, uh, within it. So that common ground, like in a perfect world would be enough to make it inclusive, but I don't know. I don't feel like it, it is entirely inclusive right now, but I definitely, I have hope for it, I would say. This podcast was brought to you by Skate Like a Girl and the Center for Sport and Social Justice at Cal State University, East Bay. It was produced by McKenna Duda, Kim Woozy, and Kristen Ebeling. The music is by Marby Miller. A big thank you to Dr. Matthew Atencio and Dr. Missy Wright for their support.